You are now tuning in to the Own the Build podcast. Join Sealing's very own Paul Hemming, where each week he interviews experts from the world of construction and asks all the important questions around intelligent construction management. Hello and welcome to episode 83 of the Own the Build podcast with me, Paul Hemming. I hope you are all doing very well today. I certainly am. And guys, as ever, if you're a fan of the show, if you enjoy what we're doing, please just hit subscribe. Please give us a rating on Apple, on Spotify. It's much appreciated. On to today's show. Today, we are joined by Danny Clark, who is the Commercial Director at the National Federation of Builders. I'm really looking forward to talking to Danny. I know he's looking forward to talking to me, or at least I think he might be. How are you doing, Danny, today? I'm good, thank you. Yeah, definitely in holiday mode. I'm on holiday tomorrow, but yeah, looking forward to it. Where are you headed? I'm I'm off to Italy with the family, and uh, Ooh, I'll have two weeks nice. of fun in the sun and switching off from work mode. Excellent. Well, I've only, I've only just come back from two weeks in Italy myself, so I can only look at your itinerary with envy because I would much rather be going back to Italy for two weeks than uh, staying in London, but there we go. Yeah, where did you go? So my partner, she's Italian, so we went to, in between Milan and Turin, which is where she's from, then we went to Rome. Rome was far too hot to go there in July, August time. Um, it was roasting, but it's an amazing place, full stop, isn't it? Yeah, good food and good wine. What more do you need? Yeah, exactly. Well, I'm sure you're going to have lots of fun. So obviously I know you, Danny. Uh, we've spoken a bit and I think this is going to be a cool conversation. I see that you're vocal on many important matters to us as an industry and probably wider society as well. But just for everyone else's benefit, could you talk to us about who you are, the business that you work in and kind of your experience up to this point? Yeah, of course. So I'm Danny Clark. I'm the commercial director, as you say, at the National Federation of Builders. So we are a trade federation working across the breadth of construction industries from the SME sector right away through to tier ones, across contracting, house building, heritage and civils and groundworks as well. So we, we represent quite a lot of construction. The full shebang almost. The full shebang. So we kind of get a good viewpoint from everybody and see what we can do to support those that, that need our support really. And in terms of my background and my experience, I'm one of those people that's a bit of a, a, a an industry nomad. I think it's a better way to put it because I've worked in lots of different industries from retail to construction to transport and logistics to warehousing to the railways to overseas, education, lots of different sectors. So my background is very much I'm an occupational health and safety specialist by trade. So I hold my chartered membership. I work not just for the NFB, I've got a business called Simply People that's an occupational health and well-being community. So I'm passionate about occupational health and well-being generally. Mentor lots of different for, for lots of different organisations and I'm ambassadors for lots of different organisations. So I very much work on people and for the last 15, 16 years, behaviours and psychology of behaviours and systems and how they interact has always been quite a focal point for me. And generally it's what's stemmed a lot of my conversations it's where a lot of my conversations come from and why I think that we need to talk about certain topics like you say women in construction is a big one of mine the individual nature of the workforce and employees and the workers is, is another one of mine because it's one of those that we don't know what we don't know and the more you start to learn about topics the more inequalities you start to realize 
you just don't appreciate it until you you kind of open up yourself to have those conversations with with people to say i just didn't imagine that that would happen or that i'm privileged in the fact that i've never had to think about things like that so actually the more you you, you explore a situation and a topic the more you you kind of get to know where we are i guess and what's out there absolutely and i actually have in maybe my personal life some experiences uh recently with some friends close to me who uh where those kind of things or those kind of conversations have changed perspective when you take a bit of a step back so that resonates with me before we get to kind of the interesting those those bits that we kind of want to discuss and in, in the state of uh, construction you're a man who has worked in multiple industries as you quite rightly said there if you take a step back and you're now commercial director at the NFB. But if you take a step back and think about construction, you say you're very people-oriented, you're people-focused yourself. How do we, as a sector, differ from retail, education, those other ones that you've been in? That's a really good question. I think it's the breadth of people that you meet, to be fair, and and the nature of the, the people that you engage with. Um, so when I've worked in retail, it's very much business to consumer. It's very much you always need to have that front and, and always be selling. And, and your focus is very much on, like a sales role, getting the business and delivering a service. Whereas I think with, with, with the teamwork in construction, it is very much a teamwork. And there is a better, although it could be better, uh, appreciation of the impact of the team and, and how you need to work together. Because it's very difficult to achieve your projects and your goals as a one one person, I nearly said one man team, but obviously there are women in construction, and it's very very much clearer that you need to work together as a team. And I think that's that's the biggest focus that I, I recognise within construction is just the power of the unity. And actually, there are some really good sites that really get on and support each other and give that safe space. And I'm, I know we're going to get onto that. And I'd like to say that that's becoming more frequent. There are things that can be improved on that. But that's my biggest takeaway for construction and why I always end up being drawn back towards it is because I think I'm not sure whether it's the, the proportion of people that come from a military background or the fact that people do get on and see the team and, and they appreciate the craft. That's the other side of it is they recognise that to, to achieve something, you, it, it does take a bit of work. So you're, you're, you're passionate, aren't you? You're passionate about construction, but you seem like a man who was once in construction then came out of construction then came back to what happened how did how dare you leave her how dare you come back <laughs> yeah i know right well it's always good to have a returner because it shows the draw of the industry i think in the past i've worked in construction alongside other industries so when i've been at health and health and safety consultants construction was one of my hats but i also worked in in, in other sectors as well i did work for capita in the past as well so which was purely construction and i think it's just one of those that i kind of you see something else you see another role that you want to take your career into and and you come back so i'm not a typical health and safety person i'm not a typical commercial director i've had many hats and many fingers in many pies yeah i was gonna say also uh commercial i'm still trying to piece together maybe we'll come back to that like commercial director and occupational health and safety specialist like those two almost feel not at all incompatible but like a unique set of job titles or specialisms almost which I'm interested about I don't want you to take this the wrong way but occupational health and safety and health and safety specialists health and safety managers um, there'll be people listening in construction thinking about people in their organizations or you know it, it it's stigmatized as a bad thing I think quite a lot of the time and people it's almost like oh 
roll your eyes, do I really have to, oh, they're coming to site today, blah, blah, blah. How does that make you feel as a specialist in the sector? I find it funny, if I'm honest. Because it's like, <laughs> really? yeah, because it's like construction industry generally. There's, there's people like to close their eyes and imagine an industry and what the stereotype looks like, or a health and safety person. And the health and safety person, in particular, if I think of health and safety specifically, it's typically white male and of an older persuasion, shall we say, without breaking any protected characteristics, walking around with a clipboard, stopping people from doing things that they just see as as common sense. And, and I think that's not true. And I think there's a lot of brilliant people that work in health and safety that change that narrative. And I think part of the problem we've got is that people that aren't educated in health and safety, and I mean this with all due respect to people, see it as a barrier, a blocker. If you don't want to do something, people go, well, it's not that I don't want to do it. Health and safety stops me doing it, which is tosh, as plot as I can put that, because actually... Um, health and safety is an enabler the way I see it because ultimately what you look to do is you assess the risk and you make sure you do everything you can so that people don't get injured which is common sense for most people but not everybody has it so for example in past lives we've done things around the wall of death where we've kind of risk assessed sounds ominous risk assessed what the chances are of driving around the water high speed which was the Guy Martin thing I've been involved in (laughs) interestingly enough one of my most interesting ones was I got asked by a magazine to risk assess changes to a, a, a law whereby there was sexual perversions. So legitimately, somebody said, well, what's the risk? And so you go, well, actually, the risk of asphyxiation or somebody pleasuring themselves whilst asphyxiating, <laughs> the risk is death. Crikey, I didn't realise it was that kind of a show. I'm, that, yeah, that, yeah. That's got my attention. I'm going off. On a, <laughs> I, did, I, I warned you to go off on a tangent. But yeah, so I got asked to do that. But people just think risk assessments are walking around a site saying, Paul, you can't do that. Well, it's not. So what's one common misconception then about what you guys do? The biggest misconception is we don't stop people from working. That's the biggest misconception. This is not a barrier. We don't want to stop people from working and we are not a cost to business. We actually enable businesses to make profit and work safely. The method of delivery can be better. What, okay, what do you mean by that? Cost of business, that's something that's been thrown at you, is it? Well, inevitably, whenever things happen, people always look at health and safety and go and say, well, they're, they're a cost centre but they don't generate cash. So you come on site, you make me buy a PPE, you make me change chairs if it's a DSC assessment, you make me buy all these things for the staff that we don't necessarily have budgets for or that we necessarily want to do. And, and the response to that will generally will be, but you don't always have to do that. That's a standard default when you don't consider the situation. It is that there is a famous line that most people know, which is reasonably practicable which is you should do everything possible to reduce the risk to as low as you practically can. It does not mean that everybody needs a new chair if they have a DSC assessment, fundamentally. It's just one of those broad brushes that, that lazy people do without thinking about the situation. Well, I think that's, I think, I think that's what, um, you know, and like I said, I didn't, I didn't want it to seem um, <laughs> like I was being derogatory. No, it's not. I've just been in offices and I've been on sites with, I've been on, in my career, like 20, 30 different sites with 20 different, 30 different project teams and it's always the same. Or And again, I haven't been in the sector building for six years now, so I'm, I'm imagining things are starting to change as, as they do. But that's always what you kind of, that was like the murmurings that you heard. But when I spoke to you before, we spoke about broken window theory and I thought it was really interesting in the context of construction. First of all, what is broken window theory? So broken window theory is a social experiment that I read about many moons ago when I was studying for my health and safety and my behavioural safety 
qualifications. I nearly said tickets, but they were qualifications. And what it was, was that in certain parts of society, if you go into certain areas and towns and cities, and there are broken windows in the, uh, in the local environment, if those broken windows aren't repaired, then what you see is an increase in antisocial behaviours, more windows will be broken, there's no consequences to actions, and, and the, the area generally deteriorates. It was like the New York subway, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's them, but it's, it's similar been rep- case study. It's been replicated across many, many different cities and towns. But equally, if that's flipped on its head, and you go into areas where if there is a broken window, they find the person that did it, they understand why that person did it, they repair it, and there are consequences to that action, then you don't find more broken windows and that that kind of theory is applicable to any construction site or any site or any workplace if you go into a workplace and it's not the managers it's not the supervisors that go this is what we do here it's just the collective that say no no no, we don't do that here paul on a on this site in this office this is what we do we work like this we make sure we're, we're supporting each other we make sure we're wearing ppe and it's your power that's next to you goes oh, no 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 we don't do that the standards of safety, the standards of organisational culture, the standards of psychological safety are all higher. If you go onto a site when they go, oh, don't worry about that, you don't need to do that, only do that when the boss is working, T- cut that corner, cut through this. No matter how conscientious that person is, they try to fit into the tribe and therefore they're more likely to take those risks that they wouldn't necessarily have taken where, the, where they're going to get pulled up by their peers. Because as humans, as creatures, we want to fit into our community we want to be part of the tribe we don't want to be ostracized or the outsiders so broken window theory is very much around creating that environment whereby the right behaviors and the right practices happen because people are brought into an environment whereby that's just how it is and do you see that as a prod at a project level it needs to be introduced or at a sector level like is that something that nfb for example who are as we said kind of like overseeing so much um how like how does it apply because i totally understand the principle it resonates both i think it it works on project and organizational level for example what i mean by that is in the past i've worked on some projects where the culture is brilliant and you walk into and i normally take it as a sign of a canteen if you walk in and people are open talking sharing stories interacting personally with respect uh, i have to emphasize that it's a generally good sign of of the environment and the wider nature of the industry of the of, of the site and you don't pick up as many issues and things like that whereas if you go onto some sites and you go into the canteen and you can cut the air with the knife it feels uneasy it feels negative people are critiquing each other and having a go at each other and stuff like that you then go out on site and you highlight or you recognize and identify a high degree of risk than you would on the other sites so at a project level, that happens. But equally, at an organisational level, there's been sites that I've gone on where the organisation needs to improve its systems and the project has been so well run that it goes against the organisational culture and vice versa. There's been projects that are rubbish, but organisationally they're sound. And I think that partly comes down to the leaders and supervisors, the managers and the tone that they set on site and what they turn a blind eye to sometimes. And do you think... Um... I'm a QS, right? So it's all finance numbers as well. Is the stuff that comes naturally to me. And you talk then about health and safety is a cost. Is is a perception? It is a cost. So you know these broken window theory and you know investing. Like what's in the work that you've done? Like what's the proudest moment you've had actually, where you're going to like reflect on a project or on something that has happened where you think that we really made change there? God, that's a good question. I've not really got an answer for that off the top of my head. There's been a few instances to be fair. 
and I'm not sure if I'm allowed to talk about them per se, but it, I'd generally say it's where we've kind of looked at the systems from a behaviour perspective. So whenever we've gone, when uh, I'll give you the example, I went on to a site and reviewed their risk assessment process. Really straightforward exercise. Actually, it was a large, large public organ sector organisation that you'd think the size and the scale of the business. And when we talk about business, should have it nailed. Yeah, they should, they should have everything in place. There's so much resources available. It's flawless. And actually, when I went on site, they had lots of different systems that just didn't communicate with each other. So, for example, they had these walls, these QR codes on the wall that identified where the asbestos was in this old building. It was brilliant, except for when I spoke to the person running the site, their IT had locked down the QR codes so the QR codes couldn't actually scan the walls. So you go, well, it's a great system, but it doesn't work because you can't access it which is just nonsense because you're not talking to each other. And the same organisation had invested £150,000 in this piece of machinery that didn't fit from one site to the other, so they couldn't drive it through. And I went, well, how did that come about? Oh, well, they went out and bought it, and then they gave it to us. But were you not involved in that conversation? So actually, in reviewing the risk assessment, you go, well, actually, it's a larger piece in the risk assessment. It's, I, I do say it's common sense uh, quite a lot. But, you go, but if you get all stakeholders together and talk about what you're doing and planning to do and why you need to do it, you then get that balance because somebody would have gone, it's not going to fit through that <laughs> through that opening because it's just sat there in a corner somewhere. So risk assessments, you can talk about what matrix to use and what risk to identify and significant risk and stuff like that. But some, a lot of it comes down to speak to the people that do the job. And that was one of my proudest things because actually when I went back three months later to see how all these changes had come, come about, they just had better communication between departments. And that's such a simple thing that people work in silos don't appreciate. So like you say, you're a QS, but actually the more multidisciplinary teams work together, the more they understand the perspectives of different people because perception is always reality. And actually the more you understand the knock-on of, if I do this, this is what it means to you. Oh, I didn't realise that. And that, again, for, that doesn't only work from a project perspective. If you look at the larger projects, getting the, the contractors involved earlier with the client and the designers has such an impact on cost, materials, design, because it, inevitably it rolls downhill and the contractor goes, but if you'd asked me earlier, we would have built it like this. It. Is that how you then view a lot of occupational health and safety is actually coordination of different, all the different fragments of the construction industry and the team into one place to actually get safer, better results? Understand the people and the environments that you're working with is what I'd, I'd normally say. Because again, I think from an occupational health perspective in construction, it is there's so many improvements that can be done. And that's that is one of the things that I will stand on the soapbox and whinge about, if I'm honest. Your soapbox, we are <laughs> gonna stand on it and we're gonna stand on it right after this break, Danny. Hello, it's me again. I wanted to share a quick story with you on why I co-founded Sealink with my best mate Chris. Chris and I were both QSs and this is going to sound sad but one night we were sat in the pub talking about subcontract tendering and we realised the industry had a problem. Number one, procurement was too paper based. Number two, it was too time consuming and every QS had their own unique way of doing things. And number three, perhaps most importantly, if you want to competitively tender, you need to know hundreds of the best subcontractors. We simply didn't. That's why we created C-Link. It's software to solve subcontract tendering. We wanted to remove these challenges and help the industry get better. So if you or someone you know tenders with subcontractors, you've got 
to see our software. Head over to our link, www.get.c-link.com forward slash podcast to find out more. I will include it in the description box. So again, there's no excuses. Now, let's get right back to the show. Now, I would like, Danny, to use this second half of the podcast to permit you a soapbox on which to stand. Albeit, I'm not sure that you're a man that really needs permission uh, by the looks of some of the things that you talk about, which is so good. Before we do that, and this is actually for my benefit, because I think I'm missing the distinction here. So, occupational health, health and safety. Two different things, if so. What are the definitions? So health and safety has traditionally been called health and safety and hasn't really focused on health. It's generally focused on the safety side. So it does kind of cross over, which is why we call occupational health and safety, occupational health and safety. However, qualification wise, you very rarely touch on health and how health impacts on safety on site. In reality, it's only really recently that it started to, to kind of get a focus and HSC have set up special groups and things like that to really focus on healthy minds and things like that health and safety generally you is typically looking at safety and the risks management risk assessment things like occupational health generally looks at health and how the health of the person is impacted or impacts on the working environment and it's very specialist and i think the last time i looked into the statistics around it is something like one in 10 gps are trained in in occupational health very few people actually understand. Why would that be? Well, they've got enough to train about, to be fair. They've got to learn general medicine from paediatrics to, to old people. And, and it's very specialist. So they don't necessarily understand workplaces. Very few GPs actually ask what you do for a living anymore. And that has a massive impact as well. But I'll try and bring it back into to a, de- a, a really simple definition, the way I look at it. Occupational health for me, especially with regards to construction industry, will broadly split into two fields. One is that what people generally know, and this will apply elsewhere as well, which is health surveillance. So health surveillance is a statutory requirement and is generally used by organisations and safety managers to ensure the control measures they've put in place for risks are adequate and appropriate. So this is where you get hearing tests and respiratory tests, spirometry, HABs, hand-on vibration, skin assessments and things like that. Um, and the other is is fit for work assessments or health assessments. And the distinction for that is that what you're assess- so health surveillance, you're assessing whether someone's health is being made worse by the work they're doing and whether your control measures are effective. Health assessments are the opposite. What you're doing with a health assessment is saying, Paul, are you fit to go on site and do this? And what often happens is they kind of get this really convoluted mush and squashed together and you go, but that's not what you're doing. So, for example, safety critical medicals, a lot of people use the health surveillance criteria for safety critical medicals, even though the individuals that are subject to safety critical medical rotate between different sites. They have different environments they're working in, different noise levels, for example, different tool usage and all of these wonderful things. But the people that do this go, but I've done it. I've done my health surveillance. You go, well, it's not quite. You've just assessed that Paul's fit to work. How are you assuring his control measures are working? It's, fu- it's funny because... Um... 
We have talked a lot about money on this podcast and obviously the financial implications of quantity sphere mindset. That's that's who I am, right? So that's why we've talked about it a lot. And we've talked a lot about ESG, right? Which is environmental and social governance. And with ESG, when you take a step back from it, you almost feel like it's almost all been environmental. Oh, and there's a little bit of social governance. Um, but no one's really focused on the social. So when you talk about health and safety, when you actually take it, a step back and listen to you explain it it's very similar right we've been like health and safety like safety has been the thing that has been at the forefront but now more and more it's health and safety so i completely understand that distinction now so thank you very much for that with regards to i guess you know like the changing perception of what health is in the world and now obviously in construction you talk a lot about individualism in the workplace what on earth are you going on about? <laughs> <laughs> well, essentially, what I am talking about when I talk about individualism is traditionally, workplaces look at people as a collective and they say, I'm going to write a policy and this policy applies. Let's stick with occupational health. My occupational health policy applies to everybody on site from the 16 year old apprentices right the way through to the 60 odd year old people that are close to retirement. It doesn't take into account their age, their race, their gender even, their health experiences, their conditions that they're suffering with, or anything else that we know happens in society. We just treat everybody the same. And we expect, therefore, everyone to be the same. And what you don't think about is, well, actually, the apprentice is not going to be as knowledgeable of the risks and things like that potentially on site as the older person. But they're also not going to be as blasé about it. They don't have the health conditions that we develop with age, bad backs, bad knees, andropause, menopause, uh, women's menstruation challenges and things like that and actually what i talk about when i talk about individualism is recognizing what support the individual will likely need in the workplace whether that is from a mental health perspective and we see the statistics with our industry about mental health amongst men the impact that andropause has about that uh, has on mental health but also generally around fatigue and energy levels and moods and things like that um, and you start to recognize that actually we need to think about individually how do we support those people that work on our sites to bring their whole self to work let's not even get into the scale of neurodiversity that exists within society what is it one in seven the only thing you use the example of an occupational health policy which would be applied to all hundred of your staff right when technically they're all individuals how can you actually although I appreciate like the endeavor and the intent how can it actually be viable to create far more bespoke policies like how do you actually make that work as a business can you you can make it work if you're doing it for the right reasons and and i'd always start with that so one of the first questions whenever people ask me about mental health policies or occupational health policies is is why are you doing it (laughs) what are you trying to achieve with it unfortunately a lot of people hear it they go we need to have it let's download something from the internet and implement it in the business they don't speak to employees they don't speak to the wider business it's a hr manager's responsibility or a health and safety manager's responsibility and they put a policy in place and go tick i've done my policy the way to do it is to go out and consult with your team but the challenge there would be that you've got to actually listen to what they're saying to you so why would you do it then so you say because i think this is we're kind of getting to the nuts of the problem right so a lot of people are like, oh, health and safety, right? And then a lot of people are like, oh, mental health is a thing. We need a policy. Let's get a policy. And you, you would then say, why would you get it's a policy? It's not a policy. Yeah. It's not just a policy. The mental health thing, don't get me started on mental health. The mental health thing at the moment is people go, we need mental health first aiders. Tick. All our problems are solved because we've got these first aiders everywhere. 
well, who supports the first aiders? What are you doing to prevent the need to go and see a first aider? Come on, we need to think bigger than that. But actually, my point being in terms of the individual is, if you actually engage with your teams and your employees, whether that's from a management supervisor level, but actually hear what they say, the response you get will be far greater than blanket going, there's a policy that you're never going to read of the support that we've got available. Considering the nature of your workforce, whether they're all in one site or whether you have peripatetic workers, and actually understanding the, the type of support that they need, providing equity of support so that p different people will need different levels to be able to operate on the same level. Me saying I commit to support all my staff, well, how are you going to do it that's relevant to them? Ha great having Zoom meetings, but do you consider those that are introverts that don't want the cameras on or do you have a cameras on policy? But there's so many things you can do. Fundamentally, stop and listen and ask your staff. Engage with the people that are going to need support. And if you have something or somebody come to you with something you've never dealt with before, listen to what they're saying and then work to see how you can support them. It doesn't always have to be costly. It doesn't always have to cost thousands of pounds and get these specialist consultants in because a lot of people that have got a condition will actually know what support they need. They just need that space to share with you to go, actually, do you know what? At certain times of the month, for example, I might not be as productive as possible because I'm in excruciating pain not every month but for example for men, i'm talking about menstruation but actually if you understand that i don't need the details but i'm going to support you in those instances and you can work from home or you can change your client meetings or we could do something no cost but actually support a member of staff and the productivity and loyalty from that person shows that you actually pardon my french give a shit about them that's the thing isn't it right it's you know the old school mentality of driving you have to do nine to five. You have to do this. You must work in a certain way, et cetera, et cetera. Actually, doesn't necessarily drive productivity, loyalty, you know, all the things that you want from your employees and your staff and your team members, your colleagues, whatever. Whereas a certain level of understanding and appreciation of the realities of what everyone is going through actually can be quite transformative in terms of like, human resource retention, like keeping the people that you want to keep, and actually in terms of the quality of, of the business and the work that you're putting out there. You talk a lot about women in construction. I think, in fact, you've created a top 100 most influential women in construction awards. Oh, we, we have. Why is that? Because it's important. And what's out there wasn't su wasn't suitable, in my opinion, and, and the opinion of quite a few people that we engage with, to be blunt. there's I think there is a lot of people that talk about women in construction in order to to create a pink ticket or to have a poster on the war or pr opportunity this I'll just stop there <laughs> right because we seem to be and i think people listening this will really resonate with them right i said at the start of the show you know people are like oh health and safety right then you said something like tick box right then you said something just i can't remember exactly what you said but you know it's all along the lines of like oh i don't want to do it or yeah i'm just doing it for the sake of doing it you're a person that actively passionately believes in it's not lip service that's not gonna that's not how the world should operate absolutely how do you arrive at this point in your thinking i just i guess it's just how i've always been to be fair I think my background has been, I've been a member of a representative organisation. I was a branch secretary for a trade union and things like that. And I just have always had this ethos since since I was a child of doing the right thing and looking out for people. 
and actually not not being that type of person that's not going to stand up for what's right and actually give people a voice so my family i've got a really diverse family group from all different ethnicities as as close cousins and families and uncles and aunts and one of the things that i've seen growing up was just how they're treated and spoken to based on a characteristic that they have no control over and you grow up going but that's just not right and no so the more you kind of chip away at things and look into things you go but that's not right therefore i'm going if no one else can do it i'm going to do it no it's fantastic oh i'm going to lead to, i'm going to try going to try my best to do it and a lot of it especially with like the women in construction group is as i said there's loads of people and it's like these awareness months where people change a logo to put something on it and they do nothing for the rest of the year and it really pisses me off because you go what are you <laughs> doing about it yeah actually it's great to have the words, but actions mean far more than words. So we launched the Top 100 Women in Construction Awards in April this year. And I used the, the royal we because what we recognised was the narrative was that we need more women in construction. There's not enough women in construction. We need to do more. We need to do more. You go, but what are you doing about it? But equally, that kind of is a little bit patronising to the amazing women that already work in construction because you're not recognising what they're doing. So actually, we decided to do the Top 100 to say... There are hundreds of thousands of women working in construction. Here are a hundred amazingly inspirational women and their allies. So from a role model perspective, people that want to come into the industry will look to these from SMEs through to tier ones of different levels within the organization and go, oh, okay, I can do that. And it's inspiring. And so what we created was the, the awards and it's great to do the awards. And we always got, when we launched it, the, the usual narrative of how much are the tickets? We're going to buy the award the usual stuff and somebody said no actually because if you're nominated and you are shortlisted for one of the categories that we've got you're coming for free if you nominated someone that's on the category you're coming for free we are making it so accessible because we want people that to be there to celebrate but it's not just about the awards it's the, the day after so the morning after we're creating our year-long oh sorry we're launching our year-long program so a year-long program of support around mentoring coaching um, virtual networking, learning opportunities, studying, training. There's so many things that we do to go, it's not just lip service. If you want to be part of our community, if you are one of us, men as much as women, and we cover off every underrepresented group un, 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 that's available, we want people to feel safe. Because ultimately, if I'm brutally honest, and I say it when I stand up and talk about this subject, I don't want to be talking about this in the years to come because it shouldn't be a thing. We should just look at the individual, go back to individual and what they bring. Because regardless of characteristics of what you are genetically, there are some people that are just amazing people. And on a human level, they're amazing. But equally, there's people that aren't. And that's nothing to do with any race, age, sex, sexuality or anything like that. They're just a wally. And so we just focus on the individual. And so that's what we're doing. We've got the launch event the morning after and it's a breakfast meeting to say that's the the hoo-ha that's brilliant great we've celebrated today's a day of action let's get on with it and let's do something to change that narrative yeah no i, I have to say look it's um i appreciate like you know through this conversation at, at points i've kind of been the stick in the mud old old mentality person kind of questioning it because i know that's kind of still remains the narrative it's not one that i agree with and i think it's fantastic the shining of a light that you do not only in this conversation but i see that you do kind of it feels almost hourly i know it's like a, a weekly daily endeavor and i think it's absolutely fantastic and i think it's something that is 
hugely, hugely needed. And I'm going to share your um, LinkedIn profile so people can come and, and, and see what you do because I personally think it's amazing. My last question for you, mate, and you touched on it a bit there where you said, I don't want to be doing this in a few years' time or I don't want to be talking about this in a few years' time. My final question to you is around the topic of optimism. Are you optimistic about the future? The, the thing I see is I see the people that work in the industry and I see the power that a single voice makes. And I'm not, I'm not talking about myself here. I'm talking about the people within our community already that you see the difference they make in changing those behaviours, changing that culture. I can't help but be, be optimistic. We have so many amazing, brilliant people that we celebrate. But the only critique I'll have, of the big critique I have of the construction industry is traditionally we are quite negative on ourselves and we don't celebrate our successes as much as we should. The more we kind of say they are amazing, people just go, yeah, they are. But what about that? That didn't happen. No, no, no. Let's celebrate the successes because it's a bloody good industry. We, there's nobody, there's no other industry that touches the whole of the country like the construction. We don't just put bricks on mortar from a narrative. And it's something else I talk about. People go, oh, I put bricks on mortar. No, we don't. You build family homes. We build communities. We build hospitals. It's amazing. How can you not be excited by what we do? The, the way technology is shaping the industry, phenomenal. The way that we're starting to see movement in um, inclusion, brilliant. Can we do more? Yes. Will we do more? Yes. Will we get there? Yes. I don't think that I've got, I, I mean, there's nothing else for me to say here, is there really? I mean, you've just uh, knocked it out of the park. And I have to say, um, you know, I have the pleasure of speaking to a breadth of different people on this podcast every week. And, uh, you know, the topic of health and safety... Uh, it's always something I've shied away from a little bit, um, probably for the reasons I've um, outlined to you. But uh, it's it's so much more than that. You are an incredible character and you're doing really great things. And I talked earlier about things that you can be proud of or that you reflect on and be proud of. But I think you should be really proud of everything that you are doing today. Please keep doing it. Please keep on championing construction because uh, we're nowhere near good enough as an industry at doing it. I'm going to share your details on the uh, podcast description. Everyone go and check out Danny's uh LinkedIn profile, because it is a hoot, I can assure you. Thanks for coming on the show today, Danny. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for having me. And enjoy Florence. And guys, sadly, I will not be in Florence next week. I will be here. So I will speak to you all next week. Have a good one. <laughs>